Please open your Bibles to the book of Deuteronomy. I'll be reading from Deuteronomy chapter 6, verses 4 through 9. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your might. And these words that I command you today shall be on your heart. You shall teach them diligently to your children and shall talk of them when you sit in your house and when you walk by the way and when you lie down and when you rise. You shall bind them as a sign on your hand and they shall be as frontlets between your eyes. You shall write them on the doorposts of your house and on your gates. Let's pray together. So sweet, Lord God, to sing your songs, to sing your praises, to sing the truth. As you have revealed it to us, Lord, we would have nothing to sing about if you hadn't taken the first step and revealed your ways to us. Praise you for your word, holy words, long preserved for our walk in this world. They resound with God's own heart. Now I pray, Lord God, From the bottom of my soul, I beg that you would let the ancient words here impart. We don't want to hear from me, but we need to hear from you, Lord God. So I just pray, Lord, now that you would be in our midst and that you would exalt yourself through the proclamation of truth, your word. Lord, I pray that it would be profitable this morning for new life in Christ, and I pray that it would cause us to grow up into salvation and that you would, by your word, cause us to be dependent upon it so that we would be a culture, a community of faith that loves your word and trusts in it to create salvation, Lord. We want to do that, Lord. We want to bear fruit that lasts into eternity. So therefore, we have nowhere to turn but to you and what you've revealed of yourself in the word of God. So make yourself great this morning, I pray. And I ask that you would do it for the glory of your name and the building up of your church. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. The mission statement for family discipleship at Glory of Christ is to equip parents to disciple their children according to the biblical revelation of Jesus Christ. And last week I spent the sermon drawing out a theological foundation as to why we as a church in the responsibility that we have to pass on our faith to the next generation is emphasizing and turning our channels into parenting and into the household because we see a pattern in scripture upheld and that it is the most effective way that we can be successful in passing on our faith. The questions that we need to wrestle with is will our children know God? Will they understand his glory? And will they put their faith and put their hope in God? These are serious questions. Will we as a church be effective in building and multiplying the kingdom by successfully and effectively handing on our faith to the next generation? So the question that I want to answer this morning is is how? How do we bring our children into the kingdom of God? And in a nutshell, I want to answer that right off the bat before I draw it out. I think it's by the word of God. We 
Disciple our children according to the biblical revelation of Jesus Christ. And as Aaron just prayed, the fullness of the revelation of God comes to climax in Jesus Christ. And here we have our Bibles with the full revelation of Jesus Christ. And that's what I'm getting at at the second part of the mission statement there, that we disciple our children according to the biblical revelation of Jesus Christ. And I want to take a sidestep here. I just want to clarify something. We're looking at Deuteronomy, and we're looking at the Israelites. God enters into a covenant with the Israelites. And now we are the new covenant people of God, and we are so in Jesus Christ. And there are some differences. But the one thread, I think, through both of these, is that the people of God in the Old Testament, the true people of God, are those who become so by faith. Abraham believed God and it was credit to him as righteousness. And therefore, we are in a similar situation in that we become the people of God in Jesus Christ by faith in Jesus Christ. For by grace you have been saved through faith. So, last week I focused on the fact that the main means by which God preserves and perpetuates the kingdom, that is the true people of God, was through faith. And or through, I'm sorry, families and households, and also through the community of faith, through the church. So, again, I ask the question, how do we, in a practical way, we know that's our task, how do we get it done? How do we bring the next generation into faith? How do we do something that is basically impossible for us to do? How do we change the hearts of our children and our youth and our young adults so that they would be worshipers of the living God. And before I answer that and draw that out, I just want to take a step back here and summarize from last week how we got to this point. You guys remember the book of Genesis, the Pentateuch, which means the five-part book or the five-part law, covers a span of 2,600 years. And I put a little star there because it's dangerous to talk about how many years Genesis actually covers, especially in Genesis 1 through 11. I don't want to I don't want to give you guys any ideas that we think one way or another, but it's really hard to know exactly how many years, especially in the beginning chapters of Genesis, how many years are actually covered there. But anyway, it covers the the creation of mankind and how things came into being, and then it goes on to to display the purpose of mankind. And then in Genesis 12, we get to Abraham, and God enters into covenant with Abraham, and he promises him a family, uh, uh, as many as the stars in the sky, and it goes on. And eventually we get to the book of Exodus, and this covers up through Exodus 1, where the Israelites become a a mighty nation. They're becoming really populous, and they're in slavery under Pharaoh. Exodus 2 through 4 covers 40 years, and that's the tail end of slavery in, in, in Egypt. Exodus 4 through 5 is another 40 years where Moses is fleeing in the desert. Exodus 5 on through 19 covers three months time period where the people of Israel are going out of exile or out of, I'm sorry, slavery and to the Mount Sinai. And at Mount Sinai, Exodus 19 through Numbers 10, chapter 11, that's 58 chapters in the Pentateuch. God has them there for a year and he starts to reveal himself. He starts to reveal his character. He starts to give them his laws by which they're to live by. He starts to teach them in his ways. That's what he's trying to do. And this is God's side of the covenant. A covenant is a treaty that's made where two different parties have uh, distinct roles. God promises them to be blessed. He promises them a land which is to come. He promises them to be their God and to be faithful and to bless them. And 
On the other part, he does so by giving them his laws by which they are to live by. And the Israelites' part by which they would become the true people of God is to live in these commands, to live in these laws, to find their life by following the laws of God. And just before they enter the promised land, they have to be fit and shaped as the people of God by this means. And then Exodus, I'm sorry, Numbers 11 through Numbers 36 is another 40 years. It was a two-week journey or so from Mount Sinai to the land of Canaan, give or take. And two weeks turns into 40 years because they grumble and they complain and they doubt the goodness of God in the wilderness. So that generation dies out. All of those 20 years old and older die in the wilderness. They don't make it to the land of Canaan. And that leaves Moses with the Israelites all 20 years old and younger. And they're on the outskirts of the promised land. And the book of Deuteronomy is in that context which means literally second law. It's the second giving of the law. So before they are to go into the promised land, they need to hear the words of God. They need to understand the revelation of God. They have to have the laws of God to follow in order to be marked and distinguished as the children of God, his treasured possession. So there's four summary points there. First of all, God takes initiative to reveal himself And I think that if he had not taken the initiative, first of all, to reveal himself, the Israelites would have certainly gone on in idolatry and in ignorance of God. They wouldn't have worshipped the true God. Number two, God spends a significant portion of the Pentateuch revealing himself according to the ways that he wants his covenant people to live so that they would become the people of God. And I said before that the natural inclination of every human heart is towards idolatry and not towards the living God. So the means by which, and this is really important, the means by which God's people and the basis upon which God's people would be drawn out of darkness and distinguished as the children of light is by God revealing his word and revealing his covenant and or revealing his instruction to his people. That is how they would be marked as the people of God if they follow that, and that is how they would be brought out of idolatry and ignorance. And number three, both times God reveals himself to his people is just prior to going to the promised land which means that the word of God at Mount Sinai and the word of God as it is revealed in Deuteronomy just before they go into the land of Canaan, I think has the effect, or it's supposed to have the effect, of shaping them as the true people of God as they follow the commands of God and follow the instruction of God. They need to be fit to inherit the kingdom. They need to be qualified to become the people of God, and they would do so by following God, and then they would go into the land. So they need to hear the word of God revealed to them before they can go into the land. And number four, the true people of God, those by faith, were to preserve and perpetuate themselves by effectively handing down this revelation of God to their children. That's what it says in Deuteronomy 6, you shall... Teach them diligently to your children. So this puts the role of parenting and the role of the church at a very high and significant level. It means that parents are key players in preserving and perpetuating the kingdom of God, the true people of God. Moms, 
Don't let the world tell you that your job as a godly mom, as a godly woman, is anything less than the most significant work in the history of mankind. And dads, there is no greater responsibility or opportunity than to be a godly father for your children. The importance of the church is just as great or even greater. Moses is addressing the people of, or the Israelites as a whole, the corporate gathering. This is the Shema. Hear, O Israel, listen to me. Listen to these words. And when he says you and your, those are singular words in the Hebrew, which means those are words that you would use to address a single person. And I guess by implication, what I'm getting at here is that the corporate whole of Israel is being addressed as an individual person, which means that the corporate whole of Israel is supposed to have an individual identity. And thus, Moses is primarily concerned with building up the people of God as a whole, as a nation, as a chosen race, as a royal priesthood. And parenting and households and family is a means to serving that bigger and greater goal. So households and parenting is absolutely indispensable, but it's not the end all. It's the means to the end. The means is the church. The means, or I'm sorry, not the means, the end is the church. The goal is building up the people of God, and households are means to that end. And the word of God is key to making all of this happen. And I don't think I can put too much emphasis here on the word of God for two reasons. Number one, or for two things. Number one, the word of God is that which calls us out of darkness and into light in the first place. The word of God is that which gives us new birth. Jesus says you must, become, you must be born again. And it is by the word of God that we are born again. And secondly, it is by the word of God that we are sustained, which we are being renewed, which we are being conformed more and more into the image, into the likeness of Jesus Christ, in which we are growing up into salvation. And it is the means by which we are being marked as the people who follow the true and living God. And, and it fits us for inheriting the kingdom. So how did I arrive at the word of God? That's the question. I'm making a big deal right now about the word of God. And I see it right there in Deuteronomy 6. And these words that I command you today shall be on your heart. And you shall teach them diligently to your children. Now, teach them diligently. If you just took that phrase, you said, what does them refer to? Teach them diligently. Teach your children diligently? Well, that's true, yes, but them isn't referring to children because it says teach them diligently to your children. So them is referring to, and these words that I'm commanding you today, teach these words that I'm commanding you today diligently to your children. That's the command here. And remember, Moses is a prophet of the Lord. He's the mouthpiece of the Lord which means that they didn't go to the store and buy their Bibles and read their Bibles. The way that they got the word of God was through the prophet Moses. And therefore, it wasn't Moses' words that God was commanding him or the people to teach their children. It was the word of God that Moses was commanding them to teach their children and pass on. God's word are being revealed and they are essential for salvation. And I spent a lot of time last week drawing out the significance 
of God revealing himself, and that if he had not done so, the Israelites and us would go on in darkness and in a form of idolatry. We would worship something, but not God. The Bible says, Psalm 14, Romans 3, there is none who seek after God. There is none who understand him. The implication of this is that if we want to save our children and the next generation, we must successfully hand down this faith and reveal God to our children through the Bible as he has revealed us himself to us. If we want our children to know the true living God, according to this biblical revelation of Jesus Christ, we must give them the Bible and teach them diligently. So church and parents, we have this responsibility before us to take the initiative, the same initiative that God took in revealing himself, so we have that same initiative to teach our children. And I would just make a side point here. You might come and say, well, you know, we don't want to brainwash our children. We want them to come to their own conclusions and let them believe what they believe by their own volition and by their own conviction. And that's true. But the way to do it is by not, the, the way not to do it, or the way to do it is not by just avoiding the word of God and like treating them like they're an open slate and just let the world write on them. Because they're like one of those little wind-up toys. All people are like one of those little wind-up toys. You wind it up and as soon as you let it go, it goes in its direction. You know what I'm talking about? One of those things? And because we are by nature sinful, they will not naturally go to God. And therefore, if we just choose to be indifferent about teaching them and specifically and intentionally revealing God to them, it is actually a decision that we're making specifically not to teach them about God. There is no middle ground. There is no neutrality in this. They will naturally go away from God. And unless we teach them and take the initiative and teach them of God, they will not come to understand and know the true God and accept him by faith. So, just think about, for a minute with me, the significance of the word of God, the Bible. We are extremely privileged right now. I don't know if you consider yourself to be extremely privileged to be at the point of human history that you're at, but right now we are post-Jesus Christ, which means that in Christ, as Aaron said, we have the fullness, we have the completion. Everything that the Pentateuch was pointing towards, the, for instance, the Passover lamb, what was that all getting at anyway? Well, it comes to completion in Jesus Christ when he dies on the cross. And therefore, we have the full revelation of God and his manifestation of power in one book, all contained within one book, the Bible. And this is an extreme privilege that we have to be at the place of human history that we're at. We know the end. We know Jesus Christ. And we see the climax of God's revelation in him. What an amazing privilege it is for so many reasons. And I could focus here on the fact that the Bible is extremely important because it was died for. That people throughout church history sacrificed their lives. They shed their blood so that the Bible would be preserved and that the Bible would be translated into another language so that another person could have it. I could focus on that. 
because that would make a strong point that the Bible is significant and there's something about it that would at least say, hey, if somebody's willing to die for this and spill their blood over it, we should give it a, a try. We should at least read it and see what it's all about. But there's another reason why the Bible is worthy to be taught and known with all of our heart and all of our might, and that is because it is God's Word. It is God's revelation to us. It is God making himself known to us, and therefore we should labor and build our lives around it. The Bible says in itself that it is a living and active word. It's not just ink on a page, but it's living and active, and it is able to discern the thoughts and the intentions of the human heart. Psalm 29 says that the voice of the Lord is over the waters. The God of glory thunders. The Lord over many waters. The Lord, the voice of the Lord is powerful. The voice of the Lord is full of majesty. The voice of the Lord breaks the cedars. The voice of the Lord flashes flames of fire. The voice of the Lord shakes the wilderness. The Lord shakes the wilderness of Kadesh. The voice of the Lord makes the deer give birth and strips the forest bare. And in his temple all cry, glory. And more than that, the word of the Lord, or the creation and the ordering and the sustenance of all of creation hinges upon the word of God. Genesis 1, 1 through 3. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was without form and void, and darkness was over the face of the deep, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. Now at this point, what this verse is describing is the world in a state of darkness, the world in a state of disorder, the world in a state of chaos. And from it, God utters his word, let there be light, and there was light from his word. And just think with me here about the power and the wisdom and the majesty of the word of God, that when he speaks and utters his voice into this dark, formless chaos, the light blazes forth, and it is radiant, and it overcomes the darkness. And more than that, it brings order out of disorder. Genesis 1 goes on to say, and God said, let there be, God said, God said, and he creates and establishes his perfect order, all from the power of his word. And he overcomes and subdues the state of the world that which was in chaos, which was in darkness by the power of his word. He creates light out of darkness. And not only does he create but the Bible says that he upholds the universe by the word of his power. And this is what we have in the Bible. And there's another darkness now that needs to be overcome. I'm going to make a spiritual analogy here. There's another state of disorder that needs ordering. It is a spiritual disorder and it exists in the human heart. The Bible says that we are, by nature, children of wrath because we love the darkness. We go on practicing and living in the desires of the flesh and of the mind. 
We are like sheep who have gone astray, each one turning to his own way. We're rebellious towards God. We don't want him in our life. We don't want his ways imposed upon us. And we are ignorant of his glory. And we are ignorant of his ways. And 2 Corinthians 4, 6 says, God, who said, let light shine out of darkness, has shown in our hearts to give the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. So do you see the connection here that I'm trying to make between God overcoming the darkness that existed in the physical realm and God overcoming the darkness and the idolatry of our dark hearts? By God uttering his words, he brings order out of disorder on the earth And by God uttering his words and by God using the manifestation of power and his revelation of his character through the the spirit and the word of God, he brings us out of darkness into light so that we're born again and that we make Jesus Christ our Lord and our Savior. And we worship him as the living and true God. 1 Peter 1.23 proves this point as well. It says, you have been born again. He's addressing believers here. You have been born again, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable. And again, what I'm trying to prove here is that we're born of the word. This must be why Pastor Charlie's blog, I think, is called Born of the Word. He reads the Bible. Somebody gave him the Gospel of John. Totally in a drug culture, far away from Christ as can be, reads the Gospel of John, and boom, he's converted. He sees Christ as glorious, and now he's following him. You were born of not perishable seed, but of imperishable through the living and abiding word of God. So we're born of the word. The creating and sustaining power of God is manifested in the Bible. It was God working through his word that has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us into the kingdom of his beloved son, Colossians 1.13. And not only does God save us one time by the power of his word, but he begins a long process in which he brings about a spiritual order in us or sanctification in us through the word as it sustains us and renews us and conforms us more and more to the image of Jesus Christ. 1 Peter 2, 2. If you keep on reading in 1 Peter there, it says, like newborn infants long for the pure spiritual milk. And what he's getting at there is the word. The pure spiritual milk is the word of God. That by it you may grow up into salvation. So the spiritual milk is the word And it is the word that causes us to grow up into salvation. So we can't just say, oh, well, I've been saved and, and I'm, and I'm in the family of God and, and so on. We actually have to grow up like an infant. When you're born again, or when you're born the first time, you're an infant. And you don't just say, well, it's born. It's a living creature. You feed it. You feed it milk so that it will mature, so that it will strengthen, so that it will grow up and, be self-sustaining. And that is what the picture is here in our salvation. We're born again. And we need the word of God, the pure spiritual milk, to nourish us and to grow us up into salvation so that we will become mature in Christ. 
That is the goal of Jesus, to bring his people to maturity in Christ. So we need both. We need rebirth and we need growth and maturity into Christ. And the word is sufficient for both of them. And what I'm getting at here is that because the word has power, because the word is good for salvation and profitable for these things, this is what we need to rely upon as we think about what we're going to do to pass on our faith to the next generation. We can only trust in the power of God as it works through the word. And that's why I'm just emphasizing the word here so strongly. I draw a connection. And I don't know if I should say this or not, but this is something that came to me in my sermon preparation. Actually, I thought about this a while ago and it came to me again. Isn't this interesting? Think about this with me for a minute. In Genesis 2, when God creates man, do you guys remember how he did that? Takes the, he takes the dust and then he... Does what? What does he do? He breathes the breath of life into man, which means that man becomes a living creature by the breath of God. When God breathes into man, he becomes a living creature. Now, can you think for a second another place off the top of your head in the Bible where it talks about God breathing? My mind goes immediately to 2 Timothy 3.16, right? All scripture is breathed out by God and it is profitable for training in righteousness, for correction, for reproof and rebuke. And therefore, just like we need breath to become a living being, to become a living being unto God, we need the breath of God through the word. We need that to sustain us. We need that to give us life. We need that to make us adequate and equipped for every good work as it goes on to describe in 2 Timothy 3. So this is why we emphasize the Bible so strongly in this church. And this is why, as a community of believers, this church, we must strive with all of our might to make the Bible central in everything. This is a non-negotiable. God has revealed himself in his word, and therefore, we must take it very seriously Not only does he reveal his ways in his word, but the power of God through the Spirit is manifest through his word. And we need those two things as we think about our responsibility as a church and parents and households and so on. So whether you have children or not, this is an application here for everybody. You don't need to have children to need the word of God. If you want to be saved and if you want to grow up into maturity, into salvation... This applies to you. So, Romans 12, 2, another point I could make. We all know this passage very well, I suppose. Do not be conformed to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. How do we renew our minds? If not by the word of God, soaking it and basting our minds in his truth day in and day out. The word of God is totally antithetical to the ways of this world. It really is. The ways and the wisdom of the world is antithetical to the ways and the wisdom of God. And therefore, if we're not in the Bible and we're getting our information and if we're getting our, uh, if, if, if we're soaking ourselves in the ways and the patterns of world which is disorder and darkness, we are not being transformed into Uh, being transformed into the image of Jesus Christ, but we are being conformed to the pattern of this world. And right living always 
comes out of right thinking. You guys agree with that? That right living and right actions is a product of right thinking. If you think wrong, you you behave wrong. I like to use the analogy of the stove. If you understand and if you know that the stove is hot, it's going to have an impact on the way that you live your life. You're not going to touch the stove when when you know it's hot, right? So a very basic example of how right thinking leads to right living. So we need to be conformed more and more, not to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of our mind. And we do that by soaking our minds in the word of God. So if we're going to preserve and perpetuate the kingdom, this church, and I'm not talking about glory of Christ Baptist Church being perpetuated, although we do. And a generation from now, 100 years from now, will glory of Christ Baptist Church be alive and thriving? It's a question that we should ask ourselves. When we're all gone, when we all move on, will this church be thriving? Will this be alive? That's a question we want to ask. But more than that, we want to... We want to serve the kingdom. We want to serve the covenant commu- or the, the people of God in Jesus Christ. We want true believers coming. And if we want to successfully pass on our faith, we need to do it by the word of God being passed on as it is revealed in the Bible through Jesus Christ. No alternatives, no exceptions. And I guess an implication here, as I said before, we're at an extremely privileged point in the history of mankind. We have this full revelation of God in Jesus Christ. And therefore, we have this responsibility and this opportunity to teach the word of God. And it is sufficient. And like I said, we don't want to rely on any alternatives or we don't want to have to rely on sprucing it up or anything like that, all the gadgets that are out there today. The word of God is sufficient. And what I'm calling us today to is a community, is a church, that raises the expectations and raises the bar on what we expect of our children and what we expect of ourselves in terms of the word of God. I long to see a community that values the Bible among all other things. And therefore, we expect naturally that our children will work hard, even though they might come home from Sunday school from time to time. And if you ask them if they liked it, they may not say it was fun. Because the goal of our Sunday school is not fun. The goal of preaching is not fun. This is the word of God. And therefore, we need to raise the expectation and say, you need to get it. That's the kind of people I want to raise in this church. Now, I don't think we should shoot for to be boring. That's not what I'm saying here. Our goal shouldn't be to bore people with the word of God, but we need to, as a culture in this church, raise the expectation and say, you've got to work hard to understand the word of God. It is, utmost, it is of utmost importance to exercise your brain. It's hard work, isn't it? It's hard work to memorize scripture. It's not easy. It's not easy, but it's rewarding. And through it, we see the glory of God and we are transformed more and more into his image. And therefore, that's what I'm calling us as a community here, as a culture, to raise that expectation, to raise that standard, to say we must make the Bible central. Our children must know and understand the Bible, memorize it and study it, things like that. So let me just spend the rest of the time here that I have this morning 
to draw some practical implications and some responsibilities that we have from Deuteronomy 6. It says, These words that I command you today shall be on your heart. So now, we have to take a step back, right? He's addressing the community. They don't have children yet, I don't, I don't suppose. I suppose there are younger children. But anyway, the point is, we have to take a step back. I've been raising a bunch of dust about how we need to teach our children. But first and foremost, these words need to be on our heart, Right? As they impact us and as they're in our hearts and as they're working and rooting themselves and the realities of them are rooting themselves in us, out of that flows teaching to our children, which means that they need to be impacting us first before they can flow out. And I want to pause and talk about the Hebrew concept of the heart here. It says, uh, I got this from the, the Bible background commentary, Not all anatomical metaphors, however, carry the same significance in two languages. For instance, the kidneys were considered the seat of conscience in Hebrew, and the throat was connected with life and essence of personhood. In English, heart is used metaphorically for the seat of emotions in contrast to the logic and reason. So that's where I suppose we get this idea of don't miss heaven by 18 inches, the distance between your head and your heart. You guys ever heard that? It's because we separate our hearts from emotions and reason and intellect. The Hebrew uses it as the center of both emotions and reason and intellect, which means what I'm getting at here is that we shouldn't separate the pursuit of God and the pursuit of studying our Bibles as a difference between our emotions and our intellect. The two are interconnected. And I guess the implication of that is that we not only have to be deeply affected by the Word of God, but we need to know the Word of God before we're going to teach it to our children. Before we're going to pass it on, we have to know it. Jesus affirms this. Matthew twenty-two thirty-seven. They ask him, what's the great commandment, right? And he says, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind, he says. That's what it says in the New Testament. That's what Jesus says. Now, Deuteronomy 6 doesn't say mind. And I think it's because Jesus isn't addressing the Hebrew people. The Israelites understood that heart included the function of the mind, the intellect. And Jesus isn't addressing the Hebrew people. He's addressing the Gentiles as well. And therefore, their understanding was more perhaps like ours, where we separated the heart and the mind. So all this to say, we need to rigorously pursue the Word of God in our minds and from our minds as we understand the Word and the truth of God as He revealed Himself. It impacts our hearts, and that's how emotions and affections for God raises up. Second, you shall teach them diligently to your children and shall talk of them when you sit in your house and when you walk by the way and when you lie down and when you rise. So informal teaching, and that's what I'm getting from this passage. When you walk by the way, I'm going to focus on that. You shall teach them diligently when you walk by the way. And I think this is an informal teaching. We emphasize appearance so much because teaching and discipleship can't be separated, Right? And we believe that discipleship happens best in the context of relationship, life on life. And we also believe that the commands of God and the teachings of God relate to all of life. 
which means that the home becomes a very good venue and avenue for true, authentic discipleship and teaching to happen. Because that is where life happens. We want to disciple our kids in our homes because that's where kids interact with each other. Kids are interacting with parents. Parents are interacting with each other. You eat dinner together. You pay bills together, perhaps. And you fix a sidewalk and you mow the lawn and you play sports and, and you deal with hardships and all of these things. And all of these circumstances of life are wonderful opportunities to use for teaching your children about the ways and the realities of God. For instance, you might be watering your garden, right? You plant some seeds and you water them and you wait for the sunlight to shine upon them and you say, uh, you know, this is, like, this is like the Christian life. This is just an example. Just like if we want to bear a harvest, if we want a harvest in this garden... We need to plant the seed, we need to water it, we need to give it appropriate sunlight so that it will grow. And that's like us. The truth of God is like the seed and it plants in our heart and we have to water it and give it sunlight. And we, and we do that by prayer and by, by reading the Bible and that causes that to grow and bear harvest. That's just an example of how we can do informal teaching as we walk by the way. And then the other thing that I noticed here is that it is also the circumstances of life, a wonderful opportunity to apply the things that we know to be true about God to life circumstances. So, for instance, you might know that God, God's name or one of God's name is Jehovah Jireh, which means the Lord is our provider, right? And you might need a piano, or something like that, or whatever it might be. So you, as the parent, might say, you know, we learned God's name is Jehovah Jireh. The Lord is our provider. Why don't we gather around and pray to Jehovah Jireh that we will have a piano, that he will provide for us a piano? Do you see how that is an opportunity by what we know about God to shape the way that we actually live? Instead of complaining and despairing, let's pray to Jehovah Jireh. And I guarantee you that Jehovah Jireh will answer. He may not give you the piano, but he will at least say, that's not my will. And if it is his will, in time, as you pray, eventually the time will come where he will provide that piano. And that's a wonderful way to create faith and to see God actually acting in your life, so that they will put their faith in him and see him as the real, true God. And that's a wonderful way to shape the way that we live our lives in the homes. And that's why I say family and households and parents is such a wonderful avenue for teaching and instructing our children in the ways of God. And I think this passage teaches inform or formal teaching as well. It says, you shall teach them diligently when you sit in your house. And I think that there is a time when we sit down family devotions and say, we're going to read the Bible and we're going to gather around the Bible. And isn't it interesting how informal and formal teaching work hand in hand? If you didn't sit down and formally learn some things about God, what context do you think you would learn Jehovah Jireh means God is our provider? When you're walking next to the garden 
Or when you're sitting in Sunday school or sitting in your house and you've got your Bible dictionaries open and you're studying it formally. So you learn these things about God in a formal setting, whether it be family devotions or at church or in a sermon or in a Sunday school setting. You formally learn these things and then that gives us the fuel, so to speak, for our informal teaching as we walk by the way. So formal teaching is absolutely necessary for informal teaching. So family devotions. And I encourage us as families to gather together, if at all possible, at a daily basis to read the Bible together. What we do as a family, as much as we can, every day we have a time, you set a time, and we just gather together and have a form of family devotion or worship. And we read the Bible. I open up, because we have small children, do it according to the needs of your family and, and, the, and the people that you have. We have small children, which means we're not going to get into a big, you know, thing with our three-year-old and our one-year-old. But we ask Lydia catechism questions. I have a little book of catechisms. Catechisms are wonderful. And uh, just gives her some familiarity with the basic doctrines of the faith and so on. And she answers these questions and she enjoys that. And then we just read a section of the Bible, whether it's just a little paragraph or a chapter or so. And one of the ways that we include Lydia is, hey, Lydia, every time you hear the word Jesus, raise your hand. Or every time you hear the word Holy Spirit, raise your hand. You know, and for the most part, she's a little fidgety, but overall, sometimes she likes to engage. And then we... Uh, we'll sing some songs, and the kids like that, and then we'll pray and be done. Keep it simple. If you have older children, perhaps you could put them to work and say, would you get a Bible dictionary or a commentary? Look at the background context of Ephesians and figure out what's going on. And, you know, our culture teaches us, oh, that's extreme. And I think that's an example, perhaps, for in that way of thinking how our expectations of the Bible is very low. If we have a higher expectation of the Bible in our culture, we would say, oh, our kids can drive cars. They can take people's lives if they are irresponsible enough. Which means they have the ability to look up a book, to open it up and look at some background information and so on and so forth. It's the word of God. And if you're just starting out, if this all seems so like foreign to you, which it might be, and that's perfectly okay, all I would say is just gather your family together. Start maybe once a week. Just gather your family together. I'm talking to the, the husbands here, the men of the household. Gather your family together and say, I'm going to read the Bible. Just read a chapter and just make a few comments and then pray. It's as simple as that. Just do that. Start with that step. And by doing that, I think that you're, import, you're communicating some extremely important values into your children and into the lifestyle of your family. Um, aside from the actual content that you're getting from the Bible, what you're teaching them is that the Bible is central in our family. And it, more importantly, it is central to all of life. We need food, right, to, to, to live. We would say that food is a central part of our life. And therefore, we take time out of our daily lives and we order our structures of our day around eating food. And so it should be with the Bible, reading God's word, the heavenly manna. We should take time out of our lives and order our lives around the Bible because we need it, because it's God's word. And when we actually do that, we communicate to our children and to our spouses and to ourselves, 
that this is central and this is important to all of life. So that's what you're communicating. You're communicating that the Bible relates to life and it is necessary for us to build our lives upon it. And that the Bible is God's word and hearing from God is paramount. More than anything that we need on a daily basis is to hear from the living God. And how does he speak to us but through the Bible? The Bible is more important than other things. That's the other thing you'll communicate. If you're watching TV and whatever it else that you might be doing, you're, you're subtly communicating the idea that that is more important than reading the Bible and stopping life around the Bible. So I want to be gentle here and lovingly affirm us to do this. This might sound harsh for me, but, you know, I heard the saying, I don't, I don't write the mail, I just deliver it. This is the Bible here. It says so in Deuteronomy 6 that we should do this. And therefore, I'm calling us to do it. Let's do this. And let's just pray that God would make us fruitful in that. And by doing it, we are building a capacity into our children and into ourselves to sit before the Lord as he reveals himself in his word. Helping them, we help them to open up the Bible and to dig into it. If we want our kids to be self-feeders and grow up when they're 22 years old and off in school, if you expect them to be in their Bible on a, on a consistent basis by themselves, we have to model that for them. And if we do it as a family, we will, and if you do it as a family, you will build that pattern into their lives and digging into the Bible by themselves. You'll feed them with the pure milk, the heavenly manna, the word of truth, and you'll build a pattern in them that includes Bible reading and study. I kind of hit, hit on that one already. And we'll train them to work hard for lasting rewards. And that kind of segues into one of the last points I want to make here this morning. There's a deep concern that I have in our culture. And it relates to this. I've had these concerns for much longer than I've been a pastor. But that is that as a whole, not in this church, I don't see it, but as a whole, in American Christianity, we don't treasure and love our Bibles enough the way that they deserve to be treasured and loved. And I'm concerned particularly about the younger generations who are being bombarded with all kinds of media and technology and so on and so forth that really make life fast, easy, quick, fun, flashy, all of these things. And they consume our attention for hours, don't they? You can log online, click, and two hours later, what just happened? And that's really scary, because when we enter the Bible then, all of a sudden we have a hard time engaging with it. And the Bible seems boring and irrelevant. This is the word of God. The average American watches TV for four hours a day. It's hard to believe. That's what the studies show. And what concerns me most, that's not even including iPods and Internet and all of that. What concerns me most about that is not the downward spiral of morality in that. What concerns me most about the fact that we're watching so much TV is what programmers call JPS, jolts per second. All right? Now, you, this may come as news to you, but the whole goal of TV is not education. It is advertisement. 
The goal of TV is to deliver your eyeballs to an advertiser because they want to sell you something. They want to take your money. Which means that the programmers have to program things in such a way to keep your attention constantly. And how do they keep your attention constantly? Especially when we have a hundred different channels to choose from with the clicker. As soon as this is boring, this is boring, click, boring, click, boring, click. They increase the jolts per second, so it's constant jolt, jolt, jolt. And they get you. That's what concerns me most about TV, is the constant stimulus that it is for us. And the Bible is not that way, is it? You open it up, righteousness. What does that have to do with anything? And that's how this culture scares me because we don't have the capacity. And by consuming media, we are being conditioned to want stimulus and to want things mediated towards us. And I just want to raise our awareness of all of this and train our senses to discern these things. So the ways that people, programmers, increase the flashiness or increase our, get our attention is by being shallow and fast and flashy and so on. So this is everything that the Bible isn't. So America doesn't have widespread persecution or anything like that. But in that way, we're very blessed. But I do want us to beware of a different kind of danger that is creeping through us that we're all susceptible to as the people of God. John Anderson on Wednesday night pointed out there is a pattern in the Bible where overabundance and overblessing and overcomfort leads to turning away from God. And I don't know what that is, but it's true, isn't it? All of these gadgets and all of these comforts that we enjoy, the things that we can accumulate for ourselves, have the danger of leading us away from God in the Bible and not treasuring himself, not treasuring him. And Satan wants nothing more for you to be in hell. If that's the final, if that's the final end, he will be happy to lead you down the gumdrop path, won't he? He will be happy to give you little tasty morsels all along the way. So long as the end is hell, it doesn't really matter, much matter how good or bad your existence on the earth was if the end is eternal punishment and away from God. So formal teaching of the Bible is absolutely necessary. I'm going to close with this. So if your kids find it boring, if they're going to resist against you, I would say continue on, be diligent, and pray for them. Because they are like three-year-olds who would prefer Tootsie Pops over roast beef. That's what I would liken it to. Pray for your children if they think the Bible, the Word of God, is boring and irrelevant. Pray for them because they're like three-year-olds who think that Tootsie Pops are more satisfying than roast beef. Don't raise kids who are headed for the worst bellyache of their lives. Teach them to long for the pure milk of the word and trust in the power of the word to make this life happen and to make this enjoyment of God's word happen. Teach them formally and informally. Teach them when you Wake up in the morning from the time that you go to bed, when you lie down and when you rise. All parts of the day are open game for teaching the Bible. So I'm calling this church to a culture, to be a culture, the fabric of which is a love and commitment to the Bible teaching. 
to Bible study, to Bible memorization. We are the church of God, and our business is saving sinners, sanctifying saints. And our bread and butter is the Bible. Saving sinners, sanctifying saints, bread and butter, Bible. So through four S's and three B's. <laughs> it must be central in our singing. must be central in our preaching. It must be central in Sunday school. It must be central in our homes, in our lives, on Wednesday night, and in our family ordering. If we want our children to be born again and to grow up into salvation, and if we want to be effective and successful as a church in passing this on to the next generation, we have to trust in the power of God as it is revealed and manifest through the Bible. Let me pray for us as we close. Father God, thank you so much for the word here. And I just pray whatever was of me and whatever was of the flesh would just fall away, Lord. And I pray that you would speak to your people and convict where you need to convict and that you would build up where you need to build up and encourage where you need to encourage, Lord. So I pray, Lord, that we have heard from you, not from me. And I do ask, Lord, that you would create the kind of people that you would want us to be, Lord, for the glory of your name and the advance of your kingdom. And we pray it in Jesus' mighty name. Amen.